It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hello, hello, welcome back to another special edition of Miked Up on Ohm. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. Um, at the time of this recording, it's a little bit before 8 a.m. on Friday, March 20th, the morning of Friday, March 20th. So um, uh, as I've done throughout the week, I just want to uh, dispense some information to help folks grapple with the ramifications of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, this crisis has changed all of our daily lives here uh, in the low country, not just here in the low country. Of course, we know it's a pandemic. So that means worldwide, we're seeing um, the fallout from how to, from folks and government officials and, and communities trying to contain this viral infection and its spread. Um, you know, I, if you're like me, you probably stayed up late to watch all kinds of news. If you're not like me, perhaps you're trying to avoid the news and, um, you know, figure out ways to, to break this cabin fever that we all have. Um, a lot of us are self-isolating, social distancing, um, you know, doing all those things that the CDC and other folks have, have recommended we do, but it is hard out here. And so, um, Again, like like I've been doing all throughout the week, I just wanted to give an update that's specific to the Low Country, specific to the Charleston, the Greater Charleston area, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna just hop into it. I'm gonna hop into the headlines, uh, local headlines, and also this episode is gonna feature content. Um, it's gonna feature the reporting of local reporters here. That's something that I've been really consistent about. Um, not just the Post and Courier, but uh, the folks at our CBS affiliate, Live Five News. Um, also, um, SCETV, um, we're going to have, a, you know, just a host of clips from from folks who have been reporting on this issue. Uh, I want to cover today. What I want to cover is the unemployment issue, what we heard from the governor uh, about unemployment and how folks can file. Uh, I want to talk more, uh, go into more detail regarding the um, virtual screenings for the COVID-19 virus. Uh, shout out to Vicki um, here at home, from here at home. Vicki reached out to me yesterday afternoon and um, she, like myself, went through the virtual screening process. I went through it for my dad, who's 80 years old, and it was a great experience. However, the payment process was a little tricky, so I'm going to um, provide some clarity on that part. Um, yeah, so we want to do unemployment, the virtual screenings at MUSC, also give you an update about, uh, CFC, uh, and yeah, okay. So like I do every morning or like I've done every morning since, um, I've been doing the updates or giving the updates, I want to head to the Post and Courier and read their headlines. So, um, I'm looking at the, uh the uh, digital edition or the online of the e edition of uh, today's paper. And again, today's Friday, March 20th, 2020 uh, top headline above the fold says beaches remain open for now as the virus spreads. So um, there's a picture of folks who were at, um, who were enjoying the beach over there at Isle of Palms. Uh, yeah. It's, it looks like this picture that was uh, captured by Gavin McIntyre. Shout out to Gavin. That's a friend of mine. Um, but this picture captured by Gavin shows a whole host of families out enjoying the Isle of Palms Beach yesterday. 
And we've seen that everywhere. We've, we've seen that in Florida. We've seen that um, all throughout the, you know, wherever there are coastal cities. And now um, I know that in, I think in Florida yesterday, the governor just shut that down. Um, so I, I'm interested to see whether or not our governor starts to limit, um, you know, whether folks can go and enjoy our local beaches. It was um, decided last night, uh, the Charleston or rather the county decided to shut all county parks in Charleston. So Charleston County. <laughs> uh, so that's a new development. I think that they wanted to encourage folks to get out and to, you know, enjoy fresh air. However, with the schools closing and, and maybe some younger, some teenagers out and about, I, I probably, I suspect there were probably crowds of younger folks or even crowds of folks period out there just enjoying the parks in those groups larger than 10. So they wanted to go ahead and mitigate any risk of that happening. People, you know, coming together with unofficial or personal events that are larger in scale, um, that go, um, that run in opposition to the CDC's requirements or recommendations. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, so that's why folks are focusing on the beach and what's going on there. We love our beaches here. It's one of the primary reasons why I relocated here. Um, however, we want to make sure that families remain safe. So, yeah, that story is at the top of the headlines. It's written by Bo Peterson. I'm scrolling down to the uh, down the front page. Uh, we also see that um, I woke up to 21 more positive tests here in South Carolina. So Fleming Smith, Gregory Yee, and Sarah Coelho have written a story um, that reads, with 21 more positive tests, South Carolina coronavirus total hits 81. So, um, man, I remember when it was just around like 39. Now we're at 81. We understand that this is due to probably the availability availability of more testing. Um, and so we're going to see that number just continue to climb. We already can anticipate that. Um, what's on the front page? Let's see. Um, regarding the pandemic, uh, there's another story written by Emily Williams and it's about, um, Boeing. So of course we see that the pandemic, um, has definitely affected us in terms of local businesses, how we can go about our daily lives. But, um, one of the bigger businesses here, that's not a local business, but a bigger business here, Boeing is starting to feel the crunch, the economic crunch that's, um, part of the fallout. So um, it's, it reads, Emily's headline reads, pandemic intensifies worries for Boeing. So we've heard everything from, you know, Nikki Haley stepping down from the Boeing board um, because I think Boeing is trying to lobby for some sort of bailout, some sort of economic bailout. Um, and that's a whole controversial story. I'm not even going to touch on this episode. Y'all know my feelings on, on Miss Haley. Um, and, um, I know this is a nonpartisan radio station and I don't believe that my criticisms are partisan, but, um, in terms of Nikki Haley and, um, the tax breaks that Boeing did enjoy, um, as part of the, of the deal to bring them here. And then we also know about the New York times reporting regarding Boeing and their jets and, uh, the horrific crashes that, that took place. It's so complicated. It's, it's so, um, frustrating. Um, so many lives are impacted here locally. Our job force is impacted. Um, so just read that story. I think what's going on with COVID-19 and its effects on Boeing is a very interesting and compelling read, regardless of how you feel about anything. I think it's interesting to stay abreast with that because whatever happens will impact all of us here in, um, in the Charleston area. Um, I'm going to run down to the bottom, bottom of the, the, the front page of today's paper. 
Um, it also has uh, these little like uh, more on outbreak bullet points. So um, more on outbreak and it has uh, South Carolina Supreme Court halts all foreclosures. So that's good news for some folks who were in a tight situation. Um, another headline, another little bullet point reads uh, some funeral homes started live streaming their funeral services again to avoid those crowds uh, and to avoid uh, running in opposition to the CDC's requirements I'm sure uh, some of the governor's emergency powers in times of crises uh, or crises rather uh, are surprising you can read more about that let me see if there's a couple more that are more pertinent um, yeah, Charleston International Airport is seeing half or less than normal passenger numbers. We've seen the headlines again regarding um, some other airlines like Delta, who, um, you know, we, we're some folks are forecasting that like in May, we may see our favorite airline uh, bankrupt, you know, so another th story to watch it will impact us here locally we know the tremendous growth we've seen at our local airport we've seen the renovations um you know charleston's airport chs has come has grown from the little airport that could with this brown carpeting and i just remember the color brown i don't know why but as a kid flying in i just remember the color brown like carpet or whatever but it went it grew from that little old airport that we all uh, used, you know, a few years ago to something else to an international airport, um, largely due to the growth also next door with Boeing, the plant being right there. So just watch that story in terms of the airline industry, because it will again impact us here in our labor force. So that's the front page of the Post and Courier. Um, as with, as always, um, additional links to information um, regarding the, um, the real-time tracker that the Post and Courier has to track how many numbers, how many uh, positive t uh, tests uh, that tracker is going to, um, how many positive tests have um, been, I guess, um, disclosed by the by DHEC. All those numbers and all of that information will be in the description of the show uh, or it's called show notes. You'll see that if you're listening to this podcast via iTunes or SoundCloud, um, that information is available in the notes um yeah so that's the headlines what i wanted to do is also just hop into um some again that recent reporting that i thought was very important let's start with the unemployment numbers i think um folks really um need to hear more about that we know that our the folks on the front line of the tourism industries uh, or food and bev are really um are the ones feeling the immediate impacts of COVID 19 and so i'm going to play a clip from SCETV regarding unemployment benefits and how folks can access them. This virus is thousands of South Carolinians out of a job. The state's Department of Employment and Workforce is seeing record numbers of people seeking unemployment benefits. News 19's Alicia Niaves tells us more. The approval period for unemployment benefits has been expedited. Those that are entitled to receive them can receive them about a week quicker at a minimum. To file a claim to get unemployment benefits, you go through the South Carolina Department of Employment and Workforce. It's been crazy. I've been hectic. Right now, you can file online or over the phone. As of Wednesday, the agency says claims are up 400% compared to the same time last week. And yesterday alone, they answered 4,000 calls. Yesterday was a very challenging day. I don't have the full understanding of, of how many and how much usage was in our systems. However, we did have challenges associated with individuals accessing our system. 
Administrators say the website should be running smoothly now. They've instructed their vendors to increase the system's capacity, which means more people can visit the website at any time and file a claim successfully. We're trying to get creative with the unemployment program and ask for liberty in regards to how we can help speed up that process and get benefits to those individuals that need it during these critical times. Here's how COVID-19 is changing the filing process. Normally, to stay eligible for unemployment benefits, a person is required to look for a job twice a week. That requirement was suspended. The agency is also looking to get money to those eligible quicker by removing what's called the waiting week. The tax deadline for employers is now June the 1st, but wage reports are still due by April 30th. For more information on the claim filing process, visit sc.dew.gov or call 866-831-1724. The call center is open weekdays from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Alicia Neaves, News 19, WLTX. Well, the South Carolina Department of Employment and Workforce says they're looking into extended hours now and possibly weekend hours for their staff to keep up with the high volume of callers. So along with unemployment, uh, access to unemployment benefits, information, and folks worrying about how to bounce back economically, a lot of folks um, are concerned about testing. And so MUSC has um, offered their virtual telehealth screening process. Um, I did this with my father who had a cold last week. My father is 80 years old. So he and I went through the screening process, but um. I uncovered a clip that further explains what the telehealth um, process is like and um, and what folks can anticipate if they do log on with their phone or device. And um, yeah, here's some more information about the screenings. MUSC is extremely well prepared from the leadership level down. And that's apparent if you look on MUSC's webpage, right? So there's a ton of information already from leadership for our patients and employees. From our division, we have a coronavirus working group and we've put together a training module for healthcare workers with regard to identifying patients under investigation and correctly identifying personal protective equipment and how to correctly obtain specimens, et cetera, so forth and so on. MUSC is very prepared. Also from the telehealth perspective, we're working on that platform. Telehealth is a uh, extremely logical solution to a public health concern like this. We're talking about a highly communicable disease, it's highly transmissible, and particularly when you have a group of people that are susceptible with, with a few infected people, like say in an ER, there's going to be a high rate of transmission. So r naught is a number that we use when we talk about the transmissibility of infectious agents. It doesn't necessarily tell you how uh, severe or pathogenic something is, but it gives you an idea of technically the number of secondary cases that would be produced by one infective person to a crowd of susceptible people. So a perfect example is measles. Measles has a very high r naught. It's like 16, right? So one infected person in a sea of susceptible people can be expected to infect or to cause 16 secondary cases. So that's a big deal when you're talking about 
doing mathematical modeling and projecting an, an epi curve. For, say, coronavirus right now, that number continues to change, right? This is a dynamic scenario, and those calculations are, are, are continue to fluctuate a little bit, but it's somewhere between two and four, is what it appears to be right now. The beauty of telehealth and all of these telehealth platforms is that we can remove that element of transmissibility through close contact, which is defined as less than six feet, by seeing to patients remotely. And patients can be in the comfort of their own home, I can be in my office. I think encouraging people to use these telehealth platforms, keeping them out of the ER is, is extremely important. But that's a great way to be seen if you don't have a primary care provider and get medical attention if you have a mild upper respiratory illness. So as I mentioned earlier, um, there was uh, more news that broke, I believe in the evening time, if not by the time I caught the 11 o'clock evening news, there was news um, regarding even more restrictions uh, being handed down by our local government. Um, specifically the city of Charleston. I think every day we keep seeing the number of terms of um, social gatherings. We see that number decrease. And um, I, and so it went from initially, what, 150 to, um, to maybe like 50, and now it's 10. So yeah, as of yesterday evening, I believe the city of Charleston, they just handed down a new mandate. I'm going to play that clip as well. This is from Live 5 News. And it's going to give you more information on what the city is mandating for folks um, regarding social gathering. And I know this is going to impact everyone from uh, just folks trying to get out and enjoy a meal or grab a meal or whatnot, or maybe just, you know, try to, try to socialize with, within the constraints of the CDC. It's going to impact those folks. It's also going to impact folks who worship. So um, here's more information on that. And the city of Charleston also implementing the same restrictions for indoor as well as outdoor gatherings. City Council tonight voted to amend their emergency ordinance and change the number of people that could gather from 50 to 10. That ordinance makes it clear that no restaurants, bars, or any social area can have more than that amount. This amendment follows the CDC's guidelines, and it comes after the governor ordered the suspension of all dine-in services at bars and restaurants. Uh, we just need to limit the number of times and interactions we have with folks in the public, and this ordinance uh, is in line with what's happening at the, at the national and state, state level, so it's, it's great. Certain places like grocery stores, hospitals, and pharmacies are exempt from the ordinance. Okay, so yeah, that was Live 5 News right there uh, with an update on how Charleston is planning on handling, um, you know, how we gather in public, so... Uh, I thought that that was, uh, these are like the more um, pressing concerns. The last one was a doozy. I woke up this morning uh, to read that the uh, College of Charleston, uh, I knew, I kind of anticipated, not, not knew, um, I didn't know definitively, but I, I anticipated the College of Charleston just going ahead, going ahead to pull the trigger on, hey, you know what, we're going to have to cancel the semester uh, for the year. And that's what happened yesterday. So I went to uh, today.cfc.edu and I found the story. It was written yesterday by Ron. Ron, I hope I don't mess up your last name, Menchacha. Uh, so Ron, uh, Ron's story is headlined with uh, 
college extends e-learning period through the end of the spring semester. Uh, it goes on to say that the uh, the College of Charleston's president announced that um, announced yesterday that he's extending e-learning. He's canceling the rest the the remainder of the of the semester, um, of course, due to COVID nineteen. Um, what this also means is that uh, graduation has been postponed, um, and also students have until Monday. Monday they have the weekend. And then Monday, they have to be out of the of all student housing, all the all of the dormitories, which was like, whoa, that means that, you know, kids didn't have much time at all to prepare for that. Um, That that really, um, really struck me as like this is getting real. And I understand why folks are moving so swiftly. They also probably want to keep the staff safe um, and perhaps have certain staff members come in to, you know, perform cleaning and make sure that that the campus is sanitized and um you know preparing for when preparing for the day when students and and faculty can come back to campus and resume um daily life so um check out those headlines google them on your own again i'll provide more uh information if you listen on itunes especially i think it's easier to find the show notes um on i on on itunes um if you're streaming it that way uh i'll have more links provided there and more information again i want to say thank you to i said this yesterday i want to say it again today thank you to my own staff uh my own team um everyone from jenna to james to vicky eileen and Kate Ledbetter and Adam Chandler. Uh, thank you all for helping me this week with providing these updates. Uh, Miked Up aired multiple times a day, um, and I really am grateful for uh, the, the time I've had on air, on the airwaves to dispense information and just to try to keep folks caught up as to what's going on and how they can deal um, with uh, the fallout from COVID-19. Um, I want to end this uh, episode much like I did yesterday. Yesterday, I invited my friend Tamisha Hardy, a registered nurse um, who also has her master's um, in nursing. Um, I invited her to have a conversation with me to tell me her perspective about the um, what's on, what, what workers on the front line. She's a critical care nurse in the Philadelphia metro area. And I felt like her conversation really gave me an added perspective as to what to anticipate down here. Um, her governor, the governor of Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf, has already lev- levied some very, very severe um, and very real and necessary um, recommendations, if not mandates, closing down all unessential businesses. Um, and so we I know what's coming here as well. Also, the biggest news yesterday was that coming from um, and I know I'm hopping all over the place. Just bear with me. I, I always stick the landing so to speak my dismounts might not be as graceful but i will stick the landing um also woke up this morning to san francisco um it's not san francisco the governor of california he was like nah we're shutting everything down stay at home shelter in place shelter at home and he's following the lead of the mayor of san francisco i believe she was out um first ahead of a lot of folks in terms of like hey hey you just stay at home uh, you don't need to be out unless you need to get to the to to a doctor's office or to the grocery store or someplace essential like that. Um, really, folks are really just trying to contain this virus and and contain community spread. And I really do hope that South Carolina 
sees these sees these other states making taking these measures and i hope that we follow suit i know it's hella inconvenient but i think it's very very necessary that we try to get ahead of as much as we can i don't know if we can get ahead of anything but at least we can maybe control containment um i heard a a doctor yesterday just really um you know a little crestfallen um devastated she sounded devastated um, because she doesn't feel as if certain measures are in place to protect people. And um, when I hear folks like my friend Tamisha give me their perspective from the healthcare perspective, it's it's something I really want to pay attention to. So when they say that they need more equipment, they need more masks, they need more protective gowns and, and other equipment, shields, um, I think it's important. Uh, and so that's why I invited Tamisha to the conversation. And I'm inviting one more voice to end this episode again sorry about that janky dismount but i'm gonna stick the landing (laughs) um so today i invited my friend and i'm gonna call her dr dudley (laughs) um even though she doesn't require people to call her that but i am inviting my friend kate dudley i sat down with her yesterday or or the day before yesterday and had a conversation about um she studies she studied tourism right so there's a huge conversation going on right now concerning um you know food and bev industry and tourism and how do we help them and how do we help make sure these these businesses don't you know don't i guess um crater out or or just have to you know file bankruptcy how do we save these small businesses uh and i think that that's an important question to ask and it's an important question to answer however um after many disasters, I think, or during many disasters, I don't think enough time and attention is paid to, well, you know what? This system wasn't perfect to begin with. How can we take this time to kind of construct a more equitable, a more just uh, tourism culture here in Charleston? And that's what I hope transpires. And so I invited Katie. Katie is, um, she's an associate professor. She's out there in, in um in uh, Los Angeles County, I believe she told me yesterday. You're going to hear all the details in her interview that I'm going to go ahead and um and uh, patch in right here. But yeah, she's uh, she studies parks and rec, uh, tourism management. She has her PhD in that, uh, and she studies the more like cultural ramifications of tourism and the sustainability of tourism. Uh, and I love that there's an intersection of um, race and class that goes into her analysis that I find particularly uh, valuable. And so she's just going to talk to us about her her study, her field of study. And um, I'm only going to play half of the interview. So this is part one. And I'm going to figure out if it fits with other updates and other mic'd up content later but um, I really thought it was important to hear her perspective on tourism I asked her a lot of questions about Charleston and disaster capitalism you know after post Katrina New Orleans I asked all those questions because this is a time this is a moment for us to reevaluate what makes sense for our workforce that doesn't get the advocacy that I see that that they deserve like, you know, I understand these these business owners, we need to support these local business owners, but we also need to take a closer look at our black and brown workforce. So um, please stick around for this. this is part one of my conversation with Dr. Katie Dudley, and I hope you enjoy it. Please stay safe. Please stay whole. If you can, please stay home. <laughs> um, so until next time, y'all just please, you know, be well. To all of my Gullah Geechee folk, to all my African-Americans here, 
um all, all my my loved ones my family y'all stay black one quick note before you listen to my conversation with dr katie dudley uh, remember if you are going to take part in those uh, telehealth screenings from musc if you're going to go ahead and pursue that uh, make sure you enter promo code c-o-v-i-d-1-9 that's COVID-19. No, this is not an affiliate link or promo, but it's the code you need to use to make sure that your screening is free. Me and my pops, we missed out on this because we didn't see the fine print. But if you enter that promotion code, uh, C-O-V-I-D-1-9, you will in fact have a free screening uh, through the MUSC telehealth coronavirus screening system. Okay, take care. And here's Katie. Well, welcome. Welcome, Katie. Welcome to Miked Up. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm well. Should I call you Dr. Dudley? <laughs> no, I, I don't even really have my students call me that. <laughs> okay. No, but I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very happy that you, you know, you had time. Uh, you know, the, the recent turn of events uh, led me to reach out to as many folks as possible to just talk about what we're experiencing and um, not asking you to be an economist, um, but, val- but valuing your opinion, valuing what you do. I thought you'd be an interesting person to speak with, but first and foremost, go ahead and introduce yourself and any titles that you might go by or in, in your area of study. All right, sure, yeah. So um, I guess professional, <laughs> it's Dr. Katie Dudley. Um, I'm an assistant professor at California State University in Long Beach um, here in Southern California. So we are, um, for anybody not familiar, we're in L.A. County. So um, I think. And you, uh, you, um, how you and I met, I know um, friends with your husband, Phil, Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, tell him I said happy birthday, by the way, belated happy birthday. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, But I met met you through Phil um, here over here in South Carolina. Phil works, of course, um, you know, within the the world of politics as, you know, campaign manager and and everything else in between. Um, But you were here um, also studying, pursuing your PhD at Clemson University, correct? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, what were you studying? Yeah. What were you, what was your area of interest there? Yeah. So uh, my PhD is in parks, recreation, and tourism management. So um, within that, I specifically focused on tourism and my research um, focused on the sociocultural, uh, political, and economic institutions that, um, shape the tourism workforce, specifically in the U.S. Um, right. Yeah. And um, I know you shared with me some of your study, which thank you so much, because mm-hmm. I, I really, again, was trying to just rack my brain and figure out like how I wanted to, to engage with it. Um, but mm-hmm. what struck me, and I mentioned this in the previous conversation with you, what struck me about your research was you focused in on one specific city that was very similar to Charleston. Can you tell, tell folks about that city and why you chose that city? Sure. Yeah. So um, the majority of my research for my dissertation um, was set in New Orleans. Um, And so from a tourism perspective, um, uh, it's kind of obvious why you would pick um, New Orleans, the history that it has with tourism. Um, It's kind of been a leader in tourism um, for many years, depending on how you define a leader in tourism. Um, And so, but what it also had is this um, 
interesting um, uh, thing where it went from a very um, mature tourism destination to in 2005, it had to make a lot of decisions on how um, the city was going to be rebuilt, um, how the tourism industry was going to be redeveloped in it. Um, and so what we saw in Katrina um, was it, it exposed all of the social ills, of course, that so many people um, knew already existed. Um, and so what a lot of people um, suggested at the time was this was a time for New Orleans to kind of take a step back, um, look and see at the current structure of tourism and tourism development in the city. Um, and see if there was a way to rebuild it um, in a more sustainable way, in a more equitable way. Um, but what we saw is um, instead of following those suggestions, um, they kind of doubled down um, on this uh, neoliberal development strategy, uh, disaster capitalism. Um, and so it really used tourism um, as a tool to quickly, um, as quick as possible, re help rebuild the city. Um, and so whenever it did that, um, it kind of not only brought with it uh, all of the racial inequalities, um, everything, the economic inequalities that happens in a tourism destination, but we're also seeing it kind of um, compounded, it compounded a lot of those issues. Um, and, and some might say that it's in, it's in a worse position right now, especially from tourism standpoint than it was even before 2005. Um, so why we look at, so why that was so interesting to me, um, is I don't necessarily think from, from doing research and, and looking at other places, I don't think, um, that New Orleans is necessarily the exception. Um, what we're seeing is this has happened over a 300 year tourism, uh, city being heavily reliant on tourism and what happens. So we're seeing cities that were kind of close behind it, like Charleston, we're starting to see a lot of the same things that we saw in New Orleans. Um, so instead of an exception, I kind of think of it more as a warning. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna see that in a lot of other places. Um, and we're, we're seeing that right now. <laughs> right, because going on. right now, uh, what, I, what it brings to mind is, so the coronavirus um, and the recent like fallout from it, um, industries right now basically, are just shuttering um, and laying off folks already. I didn't know the layoffs would take, would, would happen almost instantaneously, but they have. It was reported in today's local Post and Courier paper, um, like 16, 1,600 um, folks are laid off. Um, we heard other folks um, announcing uh, layoffs. The hotel workers here, the valet workers here, uh, mentioned that they were being furloughed. Um, so I'm looking at these industries, hospitality, that buoy that tourism, uh, you know, that tourism culture already uh, facing these, these, these um, ramifications. So this is a, I don't know how you would characterize this type of natural or crisis, a pandemic. It's not a natural disaster like Katrina, but mm -hmm. it, it definitely has um, some of the similar effects and impacts. So I'm, I'm interested, you say that New Orleans is the warning. Mm -hmm. um, I guess um, I wanted to, now I'm bouncing all over the place, but please bear with me. Mm -hmm. so, so something like the coronavirus, we see some things become exposed here in Charleston. What about when the financial crisis hit in 2008? 
um, did, did New Orleans face any type of like exasperated issues in terms of tourism as well? Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you say, it wasn't as bad. And again, 2008, they were still in a redevelopment, um, phase. Um, so, so again, not being an economist, I don't exactly know, um, what happened with that, but, but it is true. Um, and again, that's where I kind of start to disagree with people that really want uh, tourism to be almost a replacement industry for manufacturing and things like that. Um, because when it comes down to it, to it, it is a discretionary industry. So, and, and, as, and I think yeah. that's why what prompted that question. I was trying to like, my intuition is trying to pull me in one area. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah. So if, if you have these like um, circumstances that happen, like a pandemic, like mm -hmm. um, some sort of fiscal crisis or maybe um, another Hugo, because mm -hmm. I, I would even offer, I guess, after Hugo's win, Mayor uh, Riley even probably, he might've even doubled down. I, I don't, I have to look at some of the parallels in terms of decision-making, but um, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to know like, why, well, why wouldn't folks invest in something that isn't discretionary um, knowing that all these other variables could just wipe this thing out. And then when you put on top of climate change, on top of that, both mm -hmm. New Orleans and, um, and, and Charleston are, uh, are vulnerable to that. So I, I, I want to know, what do you think is the rationale behind, hey, let's double down on tourism? Is it the quick returns? Yeah, that's exactly what I think it is. Is it, um, and it really started, like the tourism development that we're seeing right now where, um, you know, most downtowns, uh, urban downtowns will have, you have your convention center, you have your stadium, um, you have your little area of bars and restaurants. Um, so that kind of model really in the U.S. started picking up like in the 80s. Um, and it became, because, you know, if, if you think about what was going on in the 80s, we had, you know, the urban cores were uh, deteriorating all over the U.S. And so it was a way um, that these leaders would say, okay, we could bring in tourism. So much so that they would often, um, you know, not even do like an economic impact or an environmental impact study. It was, we know the formula. The formula is bring in a stadium. The formula is bring in a convention center. And we can start doing that. Um, and, and if you think about who makes up the tourism workforce, um, women, immigrants, both documented and undocumented and people of color, those were the people who were living in the urban cores. So they had this population that they could have as a workforce that they didn't have to pay them very much because uh, that's how tourism structured right now. So you didn't have to pay a lot you could come in, you could get all sorts of tax breaks and, and, and um, lax regulation, and then you could immediately start getting income from it. Um, and it's still, I mean, sitting here in Long Beach, they, are, they were fighting for, um, I forget which stadium it was, like the Chargers Stadium or something, even now. So they're, they're, as they're developing more, they're wanting to follow that model. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned tax breaks. So there are incentives. I love the fact that you bring up the whole like built in workforce that you don't even have to, um, you know, you don't even have to look for or, or, um, you know, woo from other areas, you have it there. Um, mm -hmm. But um, what what other incentives other than like that built in workforce? How do how do uh, governments accommodate 
these type of industries to take off like this? Yeah. And again, it is really, um, Sorry, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm so trying, I'm being, I know you're not an economist. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out, like, people know that it's not sustainable. Gover- and these, these people, um, these government officials, they know these, these developers and all the other people who speculate, however they do, they know it's mm-hmm. not. So I just don't know, like, how do people make it so easy for them to do it? Like, is it an industry that makes it so easy? Is it? I don't know. Like, is it bankers? Do they just think these are great investments? Sure. Yeah. And that again is, um, is the great question. That's what I ask myself all the time, especially whenever I talk um, and teach sustainable tourism. Um, And we don't um, as an academy of tourism or the industry, we really don't ever look at the social sustainability um, of these places. And so Um, you know, right now what we're seeing is because more people are wanting to move closer to the urban core, you know, millennials and whatnot, um, then that workforce is getting pushed out into the suburbs. But then remember, you know, public transportation was in the urban core, but not in the suburbs because you owned a car. So it's, so yeah, as I watch this happen, I'm, I'm with you on that of, of clearly you, you guys can see how this is going to implode. (laughs) <laughs> but you're still making the decisions. I guess it's just like the financial crisis. Like they knew a bubble was going to, you know, pop. Um, let me mm-hmm. take it back a little bit because I'm really, um, I really like smart people. <laughs> I'm really like every time you talk, I like, oh, this is great. Um, I want to know like what led you to choose this field of state? Like, were you passionate about tourism or was it just something that kind of you stumbled into? Sure. So yeah, um, while I was doing my undergrad and master's, that was more journalism, communications. Um, but the entire time I was, I would spend my summers working in Yellowstone National Park. Um, once I got my degree, I still somehow was, I was working at golf courses. I, uh, I worked in Death Valley for a little bit. I was a whitewater raft guide for a little bit. <laughs> um, and then of course, you know, various places of being a waitress and room service and housekeeping and all of that. So all the while, and this is, you know, this is how most people think about tourism jobs. All the while I was going to school, I was thinking these other jobs could never be a career. It's not anything serious. It's not what, you know, but by the time I decided to do my PhD, I had spent so much time in the industry um, that I thought, I really want to focus on tourism at this point. So when I first started, I was just going to do your run of the mill, like brand awareness or image or something dissertation. I don't even remember what it was. Um, But the more I started to read the literature, the more I started to look into things, I realized that for one, nobody was talking about the experiences I had um, as a, as someone who worked in tourism. Um, the only time that we talked about people who worked in tourism is we talked about them in an aggregate sense. And we talked about them as this commodity of how can we make them better? How can we make them more efficient? How can we make them make us more money? Um, there was no acknowledgement um, of, of labor segmentation or anything else of, of why don't we respect these jobs um, when they do make so much money for uh, local governments. Um, 
so that's really when I decided to switch and um, and if I was going to do a dissertation and put that much time into it, it was going to be something I was passionate about. Um, so that's really what I work for is I work, I, I use a lot of storytelling methodologies. Um, I try um, and make sure to get their experiences as told by them um, out there so that we stop because you've heard it too. You know, it's um, only, only young kids, only high schoolers, or I did that too, but I was smart enough to get out which is my least favorite quote ever, because I said, okay, we're in this, and that was said to me um, by, by a colleague, um, by an esteemed colleague. And I said, so how is it that we can sit here and put so much time and effort into an industry where the only way that you're successful in it is if you can get out? Like that, there's something messed up um and in the structure uh, of that workforce yeah it's like also I hear that with like fast food workers um I had another esteemed colleague of my own someone I respect um with multiple degrees you know say well you know fast food jobs were not meant for adults and I'm like you know you're supposed to work your way out it's not it's not a problem like but you know you know those jobs are readily accessible they're everywhere um and and that's Mm -hmm. on purpose um and, um, you know, it's easy for folks. It, it's just, you know, I, I, I too have a problem with that whole thing is if it's either luck or, you know, um, you work hard and get, they were the hardest working people work in tourism and, you know, absolutely are, are the, are the people who are reeling right now. Um, you know, um, I, I took a picture of my, um, this morning, I mentioned to you the, the hotel where I'm at is already, it's already just changing. Um, I went down to get breakfast this morning. And I was greeted by a bunch of brown bags um, because mm. the staff is gone. And um, having had a, a delicious hot breakfast the previous morning, it really just gave me a moment. Um, it was remarkable enough for me to post it on social media, but not because I was inconvenienced, but because this is just the beginning of like mm. things just like drying up and folks being sent home. And this expensive hotel is offering me an, an apple and an Otis Spunkmeyer muffin <laughs> for, for breakfast. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm just sharing that anecdote just like, because I think this stuff is starting to really hit people in little mm-hmm. ways and then it'll be like a tsunami of like, whoa. Um, and I really want to make sure I'm there for people on the front lines who are going to be displaced. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier that New Orleans is more not the exception, but a warning. Um, mm-hmm. Prior to New Orleans, were there other cities or metropolitan areas where you saw um, kind of fall into that trap? Yeah. Um, I mean, not anything. I mean, Orlando's Orlando's killing it, right? Uh, they're cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Orlando. <laughs> right. right. Oh, well, let me ask this question then. Let me rephrase it. Mm-hmm. Um, what does sustainable tourism look like? Is Are there any cities that model that or what have you studied or, yeah, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so I'm trying to think off the top of my head of places who have really kind of started to make strides um, in recognizing um, and this is just me talking as you think mm-hmm. I always ask my friends from New England I felt like do they have a grasp on it because you don't see like folks in Maine and whatnot 
I, at least I don't. My when I go to Vermont and whatnot, I really see them really like holding on to the nature, holding on to all the green, the acreage, and um, I don't know. I'm sure they they have their tussles um, mm-hmm. with things, but I feel like they. I don't know. I I always don't feel like their tourism culture isn't so just um, you know um, is is not like Charleston where it feels as if condos are replacing you know wetlands and whatnot. I don't know. I, maybe yeah. that's yeah, maybe I'm romanticizing Maine. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and yeah, and so all of that kind of feeds into this idea of um, tourism for one historically was not meant to be a primary industry, um, especially um, of, an, of an urban destination. Um, it was supposed to supplement um, income. And, and so in places like that, um, where you have places in Vermont where it's like maybe, um, or a lot of rural tourism that's springing up now is, is if you can truly get that area um, to buy into tourism. Um, and so you have a lot more entrepreneurs, a lot more um, locally owned businesses um, and so you kind of work together in that sense. Yeah, when it really starts to snowball and get out of control is, um, again, when we're, you're trying to create this, what we might call mass tourism, or um, to let tourism be the sole economic driver. Okay. Um, during your study um, of, of New Orleans specifically, tell me like one of the most surprising things you you stumbled across or you uncovered as you were researching the the effects of mass tourism yeah there are a few (laughs) i I bet katie i bet (laughs) yeah there are a few things um so yeah so one of the things and again where i think that this was a a big warning is um and again this so this would be post katrina um what was the date? The date was, it was 2017, 2018, these numbers come from. So, so fairly recent, um, but I can't say they're perfectly up to date. Um, but tour or, but New Orleans, um, put a bigger percentage of their tourism revenue back into tourism development and promotion, um, than city infrastructure and social services, um, than any other city uh, in the U S. Um, and so that, so it's like when we start to break things down like that, um, we can say that things aren't a coincidence. Um, so if, you know, your public schools and your sewage and everything else is literally crumbling around the French quarter, um, we can start to say, you know, we can start to assume where priorities are. Um, and things like that. And so um, then it was also really fascinating to talk to, um, what was it? Uh, essentially, they provide medical services to musicians. Um, I don't even know what, they, what you would call that. Um, yeah, it's a nonprofit uh, musicians. I think it was just... NOCCA, I'll find it and, and give it okay. to you. But yeah, yeah. So that, that was their primary thing. And so, so they even recognized, um, you know, in Katrina of we need to not get these musicians and culture barriers back to the city 
um, to help build tourism, like, like the governor and the mayor was trying to do, we need to get them back um, in order to put money in their pockets. So they would, um, they created a fund and they were helping the musicians move back. And then once they moved back, um, they would create gigs for them. And it could be, you know, the, whatever was going on in New Orleans at that time, it could be outside of a medical tent, it could be anywhere. Um, but then they would pay them for doing that. Um, so again, it's interesting. We've got, you know, I've heard you talk about it before. We've got this nonprofit. We really rely heavily on them um, to kind of fill in where our government is is not, and right. so to, right. to recognize. Yeah, I think yeah, we that's the issue. I think, and um, you know, though I am critical of the nonprofit industrial complex in Charleston, I know that um, not not all nonprofits are created equal, and some are really um, doing tremendous work that is critical and does kind of dis- try to dismantle the systems that put the need in place that they're addressing. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's interesting to hear, though, that exactly that's where the government should be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we went out and we were talking about this at Rare Bit that one time, um, we talked about how I didn't know about that curfew in, in New Orleans outside, I guess, is it outside of the French Quarter? Mm-hmm. So, like, um, can you shed light on, t- like, what that looks like? It basically feels like people who are actually native to that area, their Mm -hmm. movement is restricted and policed to protect the crown jewel, which is the French quarter. Um, Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it, um, and this is something too, that we're seeing. I just, have you, and I don't know, you know how it is. Like whenever you're really passionate about something, you pay attention to things the way that other people don't. Um, But like the, I think it's the, the Google commercial or something where they're showing everybody like going and going on the Joker steps and going on. Yeah. So it was like, well, (laughs) and especially in like the Friday house. And so of course we're so close to LA and Compton. A lot of my students um, know those areas and they were like, tourists should not be going there. And I was like, yeah, well for one, and if they do and something happens to a tourist, what happens to that neighborhood? We all know what happens. Curfews get put in place. Surveillance gets put in place because you are starting to affect, like you say, the crown jewel, which is the tourist dollar that moves through there. Um, I didn't even think about that. So, so people want to go and see the house where Friday the movie was filmed and like, mm-hmm. yeah, take up whatever picture. And it's in a, in a neighborhood that's challenged and they'll use that. They'll use that as a scapegoat to even perhaps um, police it even more. I, I see that going on. We've got the east side here in Charleston um, and they're cr- cracking down on crime. And I know my research right here that I'm about to tout is very not <laughs> scientific, <laughs> unscientific, um, but I was an Uber driver, right? Um, in Charleston. And when I tell you, and, I, and I, I'm proud of my over 2000 trips because that was the most real research I've ever like done and when I tell you the amount of crime I witness white collar crime or crime committed by you know white folks if I could tell you I I, I don't even want to say it on on the mic but the things that that I was you know that I was privy to um there'd be a lot more policing let's say 
<laughs> on King Street <laughs> than it would be on the east side. But we know that where that policing presence is, that's going to be the reason why, you know, they want to protect the, upper, you know, the peninsula, parts of the peninsula um, mm-hmm. and all that Confederate stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. So I, I didn't even think about that. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of gnarly. So, so pa- painting the picture for folks. So it looks more, I guess it looks more like, um, so the people that are servicing the the French Quarter, they're going to live in those areas that are, that are currently challenged. Um, mm-hmm. And yet they can't even enjoy that area. Is that kind of like, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, so that's what it was. So the surveillance, so we've all seen in cities, you know, we've got cameras on places. Um, so the thing that set New Orleans surveillance apart and why um, the workers and culture bearers um, were so against it, I, you know, I haven't, in the chaos of moving to Long Beach, I haven't checked to see where it stands on that, but they did, um, they created a second line and went down and protested um, the implementation of this surveillance system. And what it was is every, um, every bar establishment, um, and especially within uh, the French Quarter, um, would have these cameras on them. Um, but again, what made what separated that is they had a essentially um, a war room of watching. So the um, that so these cameras fed straight into this room that had all of the TVs straight into the NOPD. Oh, like Minority Report. I'm getting like vibes of like yeah, pre-crime. and that was <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and so that was, you know, a lot of, of what my research is, is I dug into kind of the rhetoric around there. And when you hear how they talk about it is, you know, they, they could use these cameras to predict crime and stop crime and, um, and all of that. And we know what that wording um, means. And so that's what it is. So essentially... Yeah, racial racial profiling. Yeah. Yeah. So the workforce and the culture bearers were they would be under surveillance with with it fed straight into the NOPD um, at all times. And so, again, if you're getting off, especially in New Orleans, where it doesn't close, if you're getting off late at night and you're walking down um, and you're outside of this curfew area. So, yeah, it it just all kinds of problems with that. (laughs) 